John chapter 8, verse number 25. We will just, I just want to bring a message to you tonight that I hope will be a blessing to you. Uh, it may seem a little, uh, it, I don't know, not inappropriate, but out of place given the crowd that's here. Um, certainly, this is our Sunday night crowd. I mean, you're here on Memorial Day weekend. You are the choir, so to speak. Um, but I do believe that really uh, the worth of the Christian life can be measured by your definition, your understanding of the topic that we'll speak of tonight. How strong you are as a Christian can be easily summed up to how well you understand the subject matter we're going to be speaking about. So, John 8 verse 25 says, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And that's really been the key question throughout the whole chapter so far. Uh, Jesus started off with a miracle that we'll, we'll mention in just a moment. But the main emphasis of this passage and the key question that is asked, the thing that the Pharisees are trying to get to the root of is... Who are you? Who art thou? Is the way they ask it. And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Verse 28 we find is the key verse of our study tonight. It will be entirely where we spend all of our time, the Bible says this, in answer to the question that was posed in verse 25, Who art thou? Who are you, Jesus? The Pharisees always wanted to know that question. They always wanted Him to answer that question. They always wanted to catch Him in a claim that made Himself equal with God. And they often ask questions just like this one. Who are you, Jesus? Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He. That's the entirety of the study. When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He. You see, the, so far in our passage, it's actually one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Chapter 8 begins with one of the greatest stories of forgiveness in all the Bible. In fact, the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus in some, another technicality of the law. And they bring a woman caught in adultery. And they say it this way, in the very act of adultery. I mean, there's no getting out of this, Jesus. We, we were there. We have witnesses. We saw it. We noticed it. We, we pulled her out of it in the very act. And we've brought her to you so you can be the judge. And they say, Moses' law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And they were trying to catch him in a disagreement with the law of Moses. Jesus kneels down there in front of them all and begins to write in the sand. The Bible does not tell us what he writes, but the Bible does tell us that he is attempting to ignore them. And just so you know, parents, it's okay if you ignore your children sometimes. Jesus ignored the Pharisees, and, and we can ignore our children. If, if Jesus can do it, we want to be like Jesus. So occasionally it's okay to put on the earmuffs. Amen. But we find that Jesus kneels down, and it's as if He's trying not to hear them, and they press Him more and press Him more. And He just, he just says one phrase, and, and the phrase is this. Whoever here has no sin... Let him first cast a stone. 
He didn't answer their question about what they should do with her. He didn't get caught in the technicality that they were trying to catch him up in. But Jesus in his wisdom just says, okay, whoever's without sin, you be the first to wind up and let her have it. The Bible tells us that it convicts each and every one of them. And they go out from the eldest to the youngest, they leave. Then Jesus, riding in the sand again, looks up. Nobody's around but the woman that they brought to him. He says, does no man condemn thee? And she says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. But this is very important. Jesus is a loving and forgiving Savior. But he says, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't save us from our sins to send us right back to him. And He didn't for this woman, even though it's wrapped in mercy and grace, Jesus doesn't want you to live a sinful life. And it's upon uh, the hill of this amazing story that Jesus makes this claim. I am the light of the world. Now, that's a big claim. You see, that's a big claim because it has two very important words. I am. And any time Jesus made a statement like that, it would have certainly kind of perked up the ears of those around him. He says, I am the light of the world. Not only does he say that I am the light of the world, but he also says in verse number 12, that he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus is making some very declarative statements upon who he is, the ministry that he has, And this would have certainly caused some questions among the Pharisees. He's being very honest, but also very controversial. That's why we find in our passage in verse number 25, they ask this question. Who art thou? Who is it that is saying all of these things? Who is it that is making all of these statements like, I am the light of the world, and I am the bread of life, and I am the good shepherd. Who is it that's making all these claims? Aren't you just Joseph's son? Aren't you just a good man, maybe a great teacher? Aren't you just another person? And they say, who art thou? And Jesus does not give them a very direct answer. All he says to them is this. When the Son of Man is lifted up, Then shall you know that I am He. Now what's amazing to me is these Pharisees had the opportunity to see miracles, right? We know that they were present for some of them. They could have witnessed the great stuff that me and you read on the pages of Scripture. And and it's like we want to go there, amen? We we would have loved to taste the grape juice at the wedding of Galilee, right? We would have loved to to have been there when He healed lepers. We would have loved to have been there at at all of the wonderful miracles that He did. Can you imagine being there and eating the food after they just saw it just in this little boy's lunchbox? And then Jesus makes this great miracle occur. and And then everybody gets to taste of that miracle. Could you imagine? Man, I would have loved to have been there on that day. The Pharisees could have. And to me, that would have answered their question. You see, I wrote a paper in college. It was the longest paper I had to write. Ten page, single space paper to pass Bible doctrines to. It was tough, but one of the categories was the deity of Christ. And so I said, is there a broader topic in all the Bible than the deity of Christ? So I chose that one. And about seven pages of my paper involved the miracles of Christ. 
Because I think that you see the deity of Christ and His power that He had over natural elements standing on the bow of a ship saying, Peace, be still. And all nature ceases and obeys Him. I believe you see the deity of Christ in miracles. But when asked this question, Who art thou? He didn't say, let me whip up another miracle for you, boys. He didn't say, follow me and watch me cast out a demon. No, he said, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then ye shall know. You see, Jesus was a fantastic teacher. The Bible tells us that when people heard him speak, they, they wondered at what he said because he taught not as the scribes, but as one who had authority. In other words, not one that just taught what they had been learned or what they, what they had learned. They, they, Jesus taught because he was authoritative on the matter. He was exhaustive in his knowledge on the subject. He knew what he was talking about. He practiced what he talked about and he extended it to everyone around him. He taught as one having authority. In fact, the Bible says that they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now, I'm all about good, hard, strong preaching, but every once in a while a preacher needs to look a lot more gracious than he does a lot more controversial. I've been uh, 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 under preachers that, that just browbeat their, their congregation, and I'm thankful to say that is not our church, because Jesus was a gracious teacher. Now, occasionally did he not have to deliver some bad news like, oh, ye generation of vipers. That probably flew over a little bit like a lead balloon, right? But, but occasionally he had to deliver that sermon. But primarily, everybody wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Do you believe Jesus was a fantastic teacher? I believe at the age of 12, people were willing to hear him speak. Man, could you imagine him at 33? So we find that Jesus was a fantastic teacher, knowledgeable on every subject of life. And yet, when asked this question, who art thou? He said, well, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then shall ye know. Jesus wasn't the first man crucified, nor was he the last. It is estimated that at the time of his death, over 30,000 men had been crucified in Palestine alone. Many of the disciples themselves were crucified. So in the big scheme of all the many deaths that happened by crucifixion, forgive me for saying it this way, but Jesus was just another one. He was just one of many. His did not stick out. In fact, he wasn't even special on the day of his own death. Did he not hang right next to two other people? So 33% of his day was about him. That that day, that crucifixion day, was not even Jesus' alone. And yet when Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, you'll find out when the Son of Man be lifted up. This question has raged in men's minds for years. Who is Jesus? This question has been debated. This question has been written about. This question has been talked about all throughout the course of time. Who is Jesus? And in fact, my, my thoughts on the matter is, it's the most important question that you will ever ask. Who is Jesus? And Jesus says, if you want an answer to that question, you need not look in the great miracles that I performed. 
If you want an answer to the question, the most important question of all time, uh, who is Jesus? You, you need not look at the words that he said. But if you want to see who Jesus is, you go with me this evening to the place of the skull, the hill Golgotha. As we stand and look up to our uplifted Savior, as the Son of Man is lifted high for all the world to see and for all the world to mock and for all the world to scoff at, you go there with me if you want the answer to that question. You don't ask for Jesus' accompaniment during your trial. You don't need it. All you need to do is go find the the place of the skull and look at that cross. And there you'll find a man that did not abandon you in your greatest time of need. You'll find the Son of Man lifted high for the sins of the world. Go there with me to answer that question. If you want the answer to that question, we must go to the cross. So tonight, if you'll go there with me, I hope tonight we'll see something about the Lord Jesus and we'll learn exactly who He is by what He did. Number one, this evening we'll start by this. We will see who Jesus was by His submission to the cross. You see, Jesus was unique, certainly. And there you have many men that have died on a cross, but none of them submitted like the Lord Jesus. I could see many of them fighting tooth and nail. Every, every soldier, every person that grabbed them from their shackles, they fought because they realized the death that was headed their way. Even Barabbas realized what was coming his way. And nobody wanted that death. And yet we find Christ submitting to the death of the cross. He had several opportunities to escape. One of those is in Gethsemane. You see, he submitted in Gethsemane. He submitted, first of all, to his father. You remember the great prayer of Jesus, and he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. You see, we find in the Bible there a very peculiar passage of Scripture. One where the humanity of Christ begins to well up in his heart, but the divinity of Christ overwhelms his desire for not having to face the torment that would come his way. We find Jesus asking the Lord that if there's any other way, he would rather that way. But yet he submits to the death of the cross. Not only did he submit to the Father there, but we find he submits to his captors. Fully well knowing that Judas would come with those to betray him. He predicted that when Judas arrived, he'd betray him with a kiss. Then when they come, it's kind of a a unique story, but, but Peter... He takes a sword and he cuts off one of the captor's ears. You remember the story. And and, and what happens there is Jesus gets on to Peter. He says, Peter, you're not going to change this by your sword. Those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, that's not how we're going to do this. And Jesus there says, we're not going to fight. We're not going to resist. I am going to submit myself to the death of the cross. You see, he had several chances to escape. He But yet he submitted in Gethsemane. He once again submitted in Pilate's hall. Do you remember? Standing before Pilate, he had the opportunity to raise a defense like none other has ever been offered. You know why he could have defended himself? Because he was 100% innocent. Jesus had never wronged any man. Jesus had never defrauded any man. Jesus was completely honest and upright in all of his dealings. And yet there they, they, there they sat and yelled, crucify him, crucify him. 
At least by my account, I find at least three different times when Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. And yet they say, crucify him, crucify him. Even Pilate says, when when they tell him that he claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate says, brings Jesus apart and he goes, do you realize that I have power to set you free and I have power to take you to the cross? Do you realize that power is in my hand? And Jesus says, oh, Pilate, you would have no power except it be given from me. What did he do? He submitted there to Pilate. He submitted to the judgment and the impending cross and the torture thereof. He not only submitted in Gethsemane, he submitted in Pilate's hall. And then thirdly, he submitted while on the cross. I've said it once and it's one of the greatest thoughts that I've ever had in my heart. But the, 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 the most upset, the world's biggest upset occurred the day when men beat God in an arm wrestling match. You see there, they took my Savior's hand and they laid it on the cross. And God submitted himself. And the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling him to the world. You see, God was in Christ and Christ was God. And there as a soldier, a weak man took the hand of my Savior and placed it on that rough and rugged wood there. And then that other soldier took the nail. Jesus didn't fight. Jesus didn't resist. And then the hammer struck as the nail pierced through the bones and through the skins. My friend, you understand Christ submitted on the cross. And it's just my belief that Jesus at any moment could have asked the Father to send a legion of angels. In fact, that's what he tells uh, Pilate there. He says, at any moment I can ask the Father and he'll send 12 legions of angels to come and get me. And yet all the while, Christ submitted to the death of the cross. No man died like Christ. No man lived like Christ. If you want to see the Christ, you must go to the cross. We need not find them in our devotions. We need not look in prayer meetings. All these are good. We need not read the latest book from the best Christian author like C.S. Lewis or Joyce Myers. Just kidding on the last one. (laughs) But my friend, if you want to see Christ for who He is, you better go to what He did. You better come with me to the cross and find where he says, if you want to see who I am, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then you shall know that I am he. You see, the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you want to know a little bit more about Christ, you better look to the cross. The depth of your Christian life will be summed up by your knowledge and your appreciation for the cross of Christ. What we like to do is we like to get in the deep subjects of theology, right? We feel like we need to understand eschatology, ecclesiology, pneumatology, soteriology, homardiology. We think we need to understand all the ologies in the Bible. But I'm telling you, the depth of your Christian life will be defined by crossology. What you know and how much you appreciate the cross will define how well you know your Savior. 
You see, Jesus died like no other man, number one, because of his submission of the cross. Number two, because of his statements while on the cross. Jesus preached some great sermons, but I don't think there were any greater sermons preached than the ones that he preached on the cross. The Bible tells us that there were seven statements made by Christ on the cross. Uh, He certainly had a conversation to the malefactors that hung beside him. Remember, he said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. He had a conversation with John about his mother Mary, and and he had a conversation about that. But I'm only going to speak to you about four, because four really involve us. And I'm not saying that the others are not worth study. I'm just saying if we're going to look at Christ for who He is and what the cross means to us, these four, by my reckoning, are the ones that I like to study. His statements on the cross, number one, is this. He said, I thirst. God of the universe thirsted. You say this isn't all that significant. You're probably right. But when I hear this phrase, my mind goes back to a time when he said we must needs go through Samaria. You remember that? The disciples didn't want to go through Samaria. They didn't like the Samaritans. But Christ said we must needs go through Samaria. There we find him coming to the well at the heat of the day. And it just so happens there's a woman there. Not necessarily a a good woman. Probably not a Sunday school teacher by any right. She is a harlot. At least that's what we assume. We know that she had five husbands and the one that she was with was not her own. She was at least a floozy if she was not a harlot. <laughs> and yet, Christ says we must needs go through. When he sees this woman, he says, woman, give me to drink. And she says, but I have nothing to draw with. And Christ responds to her and says, if you knew who asked you to drink, you would ask him to drink and he would give you water that you would never thirst again. In fact, the Bible tells us that he says, and any man that comes to me and drinks this water that I have will never thirst again. Well, that's an important statement for us, you see, because a lot of people want to erode the doctrine of eternal security. But if I've had a drink of Christ, I don't need to keep drinking Christ. If I've had it once, I never need to thirst again. There's a lot in that statement, never thirst again. Jesus was saying that he is the water of life. And any man that wants to go to heaven must go through the water of life. And yet he says on the cross... I thirst. The water of life, which offers to us the life-giving water that will never make us thirst again, from his own mouth says, I thirst. Boy, does that matter to you and me? I'll never forget having a conversation with my father-in-law. See, there in North Carolina, they haven't really figured out a lot of the modern conveniences of man, you know, like Whataburger and stuff like that. But I remember passing by some of the homes there, and I noticed one thing in particular about all the homes, and it was that they have these fake boulders in their, in their yards. And I could not figure out for the life of me what everybody's obsession with what I assumed was decorative boulders in their yard. To me, I just thought, remove the boulder and then you don't have to mow and weed eat around it. You know, I did not understand what they were about. So at one point, I ended up asking my father-in-law, I said, Dad, what are these, 
what are these rocks in everybody's yards? He said, well, that covers up our wells. I said, oh, so you have wells and then, then you put the boulder over the pump and un- over the well so nothing gets out. And that makes more sense. Well, then that directed us into a conversation. This was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had about how he had to bring someone out to find water on his property. And he brought a guy out and they used a technique that I don't even understand how it works. And I don't think anybody understands how it works. It's just kind of a unique thing. It might even have a little voodoo magic on it. I'm not entirely sure, but they call it witching, which doesn't sound very biblical. Amen. But there they found some water and that that fellow that came over, you know, they're all related in some way or another in North Carolina and uh, just kidding, guys. <laughs> but there they were, they, they found water and the fellow that came over, I think was like an uncle or uh, something like that. And he said, here it is, Jeff, right here. That's where you need to drill. So they brought the truck in, they began to drill, and I think they went down a a thousand feet and they never got to anything, and they kept going down and they went down even farther. And I want to say, I tried calling him to confirm this, but I believe they had to drill 3,000 feet before they found anything, and they still had not found it. It's kind of a crazy thing, but, but the fellow was very sure that it was right here. And so... Uh, that evening, they, they left a big old hole in the ground and my father-in-law went out one evening. He prayed over the well and said, Lord, you know, I've got a lot of money in this hole in the ground. I need water here. Comes out the next day, nothing was there. He prayed over it again. And it's actually a really unique story and kind of a, 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 a great thing for him as he had the Lord work for him. But I believe it was on the third day after he'd gone out there and prayed, they found water running through that well. And now they use that well to this day. It's kind of a unique thing. Found water. And you know what? They, he, he told me it produces really well. They always have water for loads of clothes and, and showers, whatever they need. They, they used to have a smaller well that didn't always supply. But now they have a well that always supplies. When God the Father looked down on the earth and saw the sinful condition of man, He looked no further than Calvary. And he said if he was going to drill, it was going to be enough so that a cross could hang high above the earth. And there on that hill, the the water of life sprung up a well of life for every soul that will drink from it. And yet he said, I thirst. Not only did Christ say, I thirst, but he also said this, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's a pretty unique statement considering who Christ was and what he was doing. There was another story in the Bible. It's kind of a unique one. It's where four friends bring a a lame man to the Lord. You'll recall. They try to get to the Lord, but they can't get him there because the press and Jesus is in the house. And so y'all remember dad has a sermon called Four of a kind beats a full house. I think it's one of his most downloaded sermons ever because four good friends that were faithful beat the full house of everyone and they went up on the roof and they began to open the ceiling there and then they laid down the bed and they let it down so the Lord would see the friend. And and the Lord was so impressed by their faith that he, he healed the man and it's a wonderful story. But before he healed the man, he uttered these words. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Well, they didn't come to have his sins forgiven, may I remind you. They came to get him healed. And, and this was a problem for the Pharisees as they were all standing around and listening to Christ teach, right? Because, because they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this was a real big deal because by saying that, he's putting himself with an equal place with God the Father. This was a real problem. And Christ says this. Whether it be easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say arise, take up thy bed and walk. And then I'm going to paraphrase here, but he says, I'm just going to show you guys that I can do both. And there he heals that man. That man takes his bed and sure enough, he rises, walks and takes his bed. It's a great story. But forgive me for saying this. As far as I know... That man had never done anything to Christ. He was certainly a sinner that needed his sins forgiven, but I doubt he had ever interacted with the Lord in that way. He probably never stole money from the Lord. He had probably never cheated him on a business deal. So it's rather easy for the Lord to forgive him. But on the cross, as he looks at the people that are mocking him and cheering him, who just got done spitting on him. And at the foot of his cross there, you find soldiers gambling for his garments. You find men who earlier had covered his eyes and then, then smote him only to ask who had hit him. You, you found people spitting on him and, and you, you find them, oh, if, if you, you be the son of God, then where is he? Why don't you just go ahead and prove to us all that's the surroundings that my Lord with his hands nailed to that cross looked down and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I can say with almost absolute certainty there had never been another man hang on a cross that was very worried about their condition as opposed to his. And they said, who art thou? Jesus says, oh, all you need to do is when you see the Son of Man be lifted up, then you'll know I am He. See, Christ spoke some very important words on the cross. He said, I thirst. He said, Father, forgive them. He said this, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't understand this doctrine one bit, to be honest with you. It's one of the hardest things that a preacher could ever have to describe. The very first verse in the Bible shows the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. Well, God there is, is not Yahweh. God there is Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of God. And it's not just 26 verses later that God asking how he should make man in his own image. He says, let us make man in our own image. Genesis chapter 1, we find God, the three parts of the Godhead, glued together, if you will. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning the word was with God and the word was was God. They've always been with each other. And yet at the cross, as Jesus lifts himself high above the earth, 
the sins of the world are placed upon him. And for a moment in time, as sin fills the life of the Savior, as our sins are placed upon him, as the vicarious atonement for our sins, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As his righteousness were placed on us, his robes of righteousness, the Bible says, were placed upon us and our wicked filthy rags were placed upon him oh you know the rags that the bible says oh the 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 best things we do are filthy rags those rags were placed upon christ and that day on the cross something that happened will never happen again in all of eternity the godhead separated in some degree in some manner as jesus utters these words Why hast thou forsaken me? As the sinless Son of God begins to sense the separation that occurs when sin is in the life of a Christian, he says, Why hast thou forsaken me? Friend, you want to know Jesus a little bit more? You want to understand who he is and what he means to you? All you need to do is look at the cross. And you'll find that Jesus says, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then you shall know that I am He. He says, I thirst. He says, Father, forgive them. He says, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he says, it is finished. Now certainly I I have an idea of what I believe this is. What it means, what he's speaking about. Certainly within the context, he could be mentioning the fact that the suffering of the cross is finished. The torment and the agony that he was enduring for our our sins, that aspect of it was over. And he says, it is finished. And if that's what you believe and that's your application, then certainly that's fine. I, I have no problem with that. It's understandable. But I believe there's a much broader context to what he was saying. See, from the beginning of time all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way to Abraham, then to Mosaic Law, we found written in that law that for if sins were to be redeemed, if they were to be forgiven, the blood of goats and bulls would have to be shed. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And each year these priests and each year these people would have to come to the temple and they would have to offer for their sins and for the sins of their family their sin offerings to be forgiven. Every year. You know what that sounds like? Taxes. How many of you love taxes? Exactly. This was an endless cycle. Certainly it was something that people had grown to scorn and hate as the temple itself had become more corrupt and and less pure from what it was meant to be. And even the Pharisees and the scribes who represented the hierarchy of religion had become corrupt. Now they have to go to the temple to offer sacrifice. I'm sure men hated it. I'm sure men loathed it. Every year even the poorest of families would have to find the funds to take their offering to the temple to be forgiven for one more year, to be postponed. 
And in those offerings, there was a remembrance of sin, the book of Hebrew tells us. that Those offerings could never remove sin. They could only postpone sin. What was Christ meaning when he said it was finished? Well, this is what I believe. He was saying the cycle of constant pausing, the cycle of constant postponement is over. For the Son of Man was slain before the foundation of the world. He died for sin once and for all. We need not do this over and over again. We need not look towards another Savior. But me and you, friend, can look at the cross of Calvary. And we find there Jesus saying those very important words. It is Finished. And what that means for you is you don't have to go to the temple in Israel and you don't have to offer your offering. But more importantly, you don't have to wake up tomorrow under the fear that you'll not go to heaven. But Jesus said, your work, your race, your struggle to get to heaven, it is finished. Believe in me and you have life. Don't believe in me, you have not life. That's what Jesus is saying. The struggle for salvation is over. The victory's been won. It is finished. You see, these are so important. And if we're trying to learn a little bit about Christ, we don't need to go to, to the great miracles or the great teachings. All we have to do is look at the cross. Because he says, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then ye shall know that I am He. See, Christ told us by His statements from the cross who He was. Christ told us by His submission to the cross who He was. But thirdly, we must hurry. Christ told us by his signs while on the cross who he was. Christ lived like no other man. Christ died like no other man. And even while Christ is in somewhat of a compromised state, that's probably not the best way to say it, but but there he is placed on the cross, can't really do anything, just suffering, fighting for his next gasp of air. All of nature around him is in pandemonium. There, it's, it's going crazy. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, I, I'm speaking of several events that take place while on the cross that, that, to my knowledge, have never happened to another man. Number one, the earth grows dark. You see, Jesus was placed on the cross around 9 a.m. The Bible tells us then at about noon, the earth grew dark. For three hours before our Lord died, the earth was dark. And while this may not be very significant to some, when you study the Old Testament, you'll find that darkness is a sign of judgment. You see, what was the ninth plague before the tenth one? Obviously, the tenth one was the firstborn. But do you remember the ninth plague? Darkness. Darkness, or God's judgment, preceded death. And there you find, before Christ dies, not after, before Christ dies, for three hours, you have God's judgment displayed in darkness. The judgment of God being placed on Christ for the sins of the world. The earth grows increasingly dark. Isaiah chapter 53 says this in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul a sin offering. What, what, what was happening there is when the Bible says it pleased the Lord, it meant it met his righteous standard. It did not make God happy to place Christ on the cross. But what it's saying is, it was satisfactory payment for what God required for sin. So as the earth grows dark, it represents the judgment of God being placed on Christ for the sins of the world. And Christ dies. There's darkness on the earth. The temple veil was torn. I love this portion of scripture. What this means to me and you ought to just make our hearts so cheerful and so happy. You see, the temple was very unique and everything in it served a very specific purpose. And Solomon's temple existed. And then Herod actually added on to the temple. But if you have like the outer rim, the the temple was built around the center the center being what we would call the Holy of Holies. And then on the outside rim, the farthest outside rim, you had what was called the outer court. It would have been referred to in their day as the court of the Gentiles. It's as close as the Gentiles could come to God's presence. Boy, that'd be pretty rough because that's where me and you'd be stuck. And then if you just go in a little bit closer, you have the inner court. And some would refer to that as the court of women. Because that's as far as the women could go in. It was right inside the beautiful gate. You know the one in Acts chapter 4 when the Bible says there was a man that sat at the beautiful gate. It was right in between the outer court and the inner court of the temple. And it was there that the, the, the pots for the money were taken. And, and that's where the widow would have offered her two mites. was there in the women's court, the inner court. And then just a little further up, there's another gate there. And that's where the men were permitted to go, was just through that gate. Then a little further was the priest's court where they would offer sacrifice. The holy place. You go just a little bit further, separated by a curtain that I can't even begin to describe because I've read through Leviticus and man, my mind just doesn't even get it. I know that it was big and it was crazy, beautiful, and there was so much material. But I know this, it represented the separation between God and man. And only one time a year, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, only one time a year would the high priest be permitted into that place to offer this uh, atonement sacrifice, to place upon the mercy seat the blood of that sacrifice. Now, all that being said, when that curtain ripped, it allowed access for every man. I don't, I don't think we understand the depth of that. You see, if, if Christ had not died, we're still strangers and outcasts in the camp. We're just Gentiles. We have no right to God's heritage. And in fact, the one woman put it like this, but maybe the dog can eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That's where we were. We were crumb eaters. <laughs> You know what that curtain tearing did? 
as God rips it from the top to the bottom to indicate there's no way any man could have done this, while Christ is on the cross, the curtain tears in two. It represented the fact that every man now had a personal responsibility and accountability, but more importantly, access to God, the Holy of Holies. Christ said, it is finished. The temple veil was torn into two. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy, uh, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which, we have, which He hath consecrated for us, through the veil that is to say His flesh. You see, the veil was torn in two, and it allowed us access to the holy place. Man, the temple veil was torn. And then fourthly, I want you to see this, the earthquake. Y'all remember the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27 verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. We may just think that was God kind of stamping his anger or his disapproval, and maybe that was the case, but maybe we could think about it a little bit more. Maybe there's a bigger meaning to it. Maybe there's a type given somewhere in the Old Testament. You see, there was another time when an earthquake occurred. It was when Moses went on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. It may seem insignificant at first, but while he's up there, the earth begins to shake in a very similar manner to what we see here in Matthew chapter 27. The law comes, an earthquake occurs. Now, the the testator, Christ, the, the death of the testator, the first law came and it was the first covenant, the testament. Now the second covenant lies hanging on the cross. The death of the testator allowed a new covenant in. You see, it was the coming of the law that brought judgment. See, the, the Bible says, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, Christ hanging on that cross was God's fulfillment of the first covenant. The first covenant, the one that all those men lived under, which we lived under. You see, the Bible says there is uh, all flesh is, is, is corrupt. The Bible says we have all gone out of the way. There is none that doeth good. There is none that seeketh after God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And We were all under the condemnation that the law brought to us. And the earth quaked when Moses was given the law. And now as Christ, notice this, fulfills the law for every man, another earthquake occurs. You see, there was nothing wrong with the law. The law was good. The law was divine revelation from God. It was our inability to keep the law that was bad. It was our sinful flesh that was bad. But that earthquake that day on Mount Sinai represented God's divine revelation to Moses. Now what does it mean on Golgotha? It means God's divine revelation and fulfillment to the first covenant. It's God doing what we could not do. 
It's God fulfilling the promise that He said even in Genesis chapter 3.15 that the serpent would bruise the heel of the, the wo- uh, seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. It's God's fulfillment to the promise. It's the same promise that He gave Abraham when Abraham looked at Isaac and said, Son, God will provide Himself a ram. It's the same promise that John looked up on the banks of the river that day and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. It's the promise that the Lamb of God would be slain for every man to look upon. It's that promise. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the Lamb of God. That's what that earthquake meant. It was God's stamp of approval that Christ had done exactly what God needed him to do. You see, there's a lot of people in this world that need to answer this question. Who is Christ? I'll never forget, it was years ago, me and my mom had went with my dad on a trip to Oregon. My dad was preaching in a church and we had gone with him and I can't, this is very odd for us. But this particular night, we were flying out, I think, on a red-eye flight. It was extremely late at night or early in the morning. I think it was something like 4 in the morning. We were there in the, in the airport. We were all exhausted. And we go and sit down in the terminal there, and there's not very many people at all. There's just me, my mom, and my dad. And I don't remember anybody else, but there's this one fella sitting right across from us. At that time, me and my mom and my dad were very big into the professional bull riding. And that was before Brazil took over it. And so we, we could pronounce the people's names. Uh, Edna Caminhas was kind of where we left off there. Amen. But uh, uh, we used to be very big into bull riding. I'll never forget sitting there in that airport just like this. And I look over at that guy there and he slumped over in his chair. And he's got his cowboy hat over his face. And, and if, if that was all that had happened, I'd probably not ever, I would have never thought anything about it. But I saw his jacket. And on his jacket, it had all the PBR stuff. Professional bull riding. And you probably don't know too much about it. If you do, then you probably know more than me about it. But at that time, there was one guy that was just the best. You see, Ty Murray had been the best for years and years and years. He kind of specialized more in bucking Bronx. And he was like infinity time world champion at that. But, but for a while he came over to the PBR and he was one of my favorites. Man, I loved him. But he kind of had gotten a little older and he had stepped off to the side. And there was this guy, short guy. His name was Chris Shivers. Well, that sounds like a cowboy name right there. Oh, my name's Chris Shivers. Like you can't even say that with the Yankee accent. And so Chris Shivers had become my favorite. They had, they had labeled him the Million Dollar Man. That was back before the PBR had really gotten all the sponsorships and grown to be this ginormous event. And, and he was the first guy to win one, uh, one uh, a rodeo or bull riding that he won a million dollars. It was the final prize for the end of the year. And Chris Shivers had won that. Chris Shivers was my favorite. And I'll never forget sitting in that airport and we couldn't see his, this guy's face. And I lean over to my mom and I go, Mom, I think that is Chris Shivers. And at first, you know, she dismissed me like the 12-year-old that I was. No, no, it's not Chris Shivers. I'm like, Mom, I, 
I really think that's Chris Shivers. And I, this is before iPhones, so we, we couldn't have Googled it, but we did some research some way, I can't remember, and we found out that there had been a PBR bull riding in Oregon that day. Now things seem to be aligning. And it's not so impossible that the million dollar man might be sitting right in front of us. What, do y'all remember how early I told y'all this was? It's like three or four in the morning. And even when I see like famous people out in real life, I'm not the guy that goes up to them. You know why? Because if I was famous, I would just want one person every once in a while to make the decision that they don't need a selfie and they don't need my autograph just to leave me alone for five seconds. And so that's the decision I've made. So mom's like, go up and ask him. And I'm like, he is literally sleeping. I'm not going and asking him nothing. And could you imagine how embarrassing that would be? Hi, are you Chris Shivers? Nope. Have a good nap. Like, that would be the worst. Could you imagine anything more frustrating than having someone waking you up thinking that you're a cowboy a famous cowboy, and you got your hat over your face. And that would be terrible. A little over-anxious there, I would suppose. I'll never forget. My mom says, well, I'll ask him. You see, my mom has not made the same life choices that I have. My mom doesn't really respect other people's privacy. And man, she gets up, and she goes over there, and it's so funny to watch her. Yeah, she's got to get down on his level. He's a short guy. You want to know how short he is? He could lay stretched out over three planes in the, uh, three airplane seats. That's how short he was. He goes, "Sir, are you Chris Shivers?" <laughs> it was Chris Shivers. <laughs> this blew my mind. For like 20 years, that was the first, like the first famous person I'd ever... I mean, Brian Free, of course, but that's like the real famous person there. Like, that was awesome, man. It was funny. I saw Yasiel Puig the other day in the Los Angeles airport. How many of you know who Yasiel Puig is? Okay, 12 of us. That's how famous he is, right? Okay, you don't know who he is. Yasiel Puig is the right fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I was walking through the Los Angeles airport. Mom, you were there with me, weren't you? And, uh, and I look up and there's this guy that is just, just, he looks like, man, he's so big and strong. I mean, he is just Hercules looking. I mean, and his, his shoulders are so broad and his muscles are so big. And, and I look at him, he's got this big gold chain around his neck and I'm like, that's Yasiel Puig. She's like, what? And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is Yasiel Puig. She's like, I'll go up and ask. No, no, no. She didn't, she didn't say it that time. I'm just kidding. He had a Los Angeles Dodgers bag on his side. I began to Google it. Turns out he had just uh, completed a, a rehab assignment at like AAA and he was going to meet up with the Dodgers team. And it was awesome to see him there in the airport. Sure enough, everybody's over there. But you know, every person that I've ever seen, there's this level of uncertainty. Like, you're not sure if that's really them because you're just in shock. And have you ever noticed the camera does something to their face that doesn't, I mean, they don't look like the same in, in real life. There's always this question as, 
Is that really who that is? I don't know if you're struggling with that question. I don't know if if that question's come across your mind lately about Christ. Is that really who he is? Is that really what he means to me? I'm telling you this, Christian. We get so caught up in the service of the ministry... We forget to sit at the foot of Calvary and just admire the Lamb of God every once in a while. Just just remember how pure He was. Just remember how perfect He was. And just remember that He submitted to that death, not for the world, but for you. If you'd have been the only sinner in the world, Christ would have gone through everything He went through just for you. Christ says, if you want to know who I am, when the Son of Man be lifted up, then you shall know that I am He.